Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned as we started, today is a feast day in the church, the feast of Christ the King. Um, and I don't know how familiar you are with the liturgical calendar. I always think of the liturgical calendar as a discipleship tool. It helps us retrace and walk through uh, the story of our Lord, the story of our redemption year after year after year. And so what's interesting is that today we have a feast day that's very recent, uh, the Feast of Christ the King was only introduced in the early 20th century. Um, it was introduced by Pope Pius XI right after World War I, and the Roman Catholic Church adopted it. The Anglican Church also adopted it. I want to talk a little bit about why this was instituted. Because Christ the King, that idea of kingship, seems out of place in the modern world. And that's why it was instituted. You see, right after World War I, uh, Christian leaders were looking around at the world. They had seen the rise of secularism, the decline of the church. They had seen the tragic way that Christians in Europe had supported uh, fascist dictators. Um, they saw a church in trouble, um, overwhelmed by a hostile culture, a church that was tempted to compromise uh, with non-Christian government and leaders um, that would collude with power or at least um, aim for survival. Early in the 20th century, people were leaving the church, leaving the faith in droves. And so this feast day was given here at the end of the liturgical year to call the church back, back to its first love, back to its first truths, that Christ and Christ alone is king and worthy of honor, uh, worship, uh, and duty. Uh, the Pope said he had three main goals. First, uh, that all the nations would see once again uh, that the church was beholden to the Lord, uh, this higher, highest authority on the earth. Uh, second, that it would actually preach to the nations, um, that they should give honor and respect to Christ, uh, the one and only King. And that third, that the faithful would gain strength and courage from celebrating and being reminded that whatever uh, governments come and go, Christ is king, and Christ is king alone. Um, and this is a feast for the whole church, but it's worked out in individual congregations, um, outposts of the kingdom of God. A little bit later in the 20th century, there was a missionary named Leslie Newbegin. Uh, Leslie Newbegin is fascinating. If you look at his story, um, he left England and was a missionary for decades in India. He did incredible work there to actually unite the church of South India. Um, he retired and went home thinking he would enjoy a peaceful retirement and was shocked to return to England and feel like it was as much, if not more, of a mission field than where he had been. And he started some of the earliest writings in the last century about what does it look like to think about the mission of God um, not just as we get a passport and get on a plane and go somewhere, but the mission of God right on our doorstep. The mission of God with our friends and neighbors. What's it look like to call people back to uh, Christ as king? And so he was writing shortly after World War II 
and wrote that if the gospel is to challenge the public life of our society, if Christians are to occupy the high ground which they vacated in the noontime of modernity, it will not be by forming a Christian political party or by aggressive propaganda campaigns. He wrote, once again, it has to be said, there can be no going back. It will only be by movements that begin with the local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, known, and experienced, and from which men and women will go out into every sector of public life to claim it for Christ, to unmask the illusions which have remained hidden, and to expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel. He wrote, that will only happen as and when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. It's interesting, in the early 20th century, these leaders were thinking through, what does it look like to follow Christ? What's it look like to do that in the public sphere? How do we think about governments and turmoil and these things? And they said, first and foremost, individual Christians, individual congregations, churches must be devoted to Christ as king and him as king alone. And so this feast day uh, sneaks up on us. <laughs> the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're a little tired. Uh, there's no coffee this morning. That's unfair given a passage this dense. Um, but we have Christ the King Sunday, and we have Matthew 25. This incredible scene of, uh, of judgment, of the throne, where we see our coming king and reigning judge, the Lord Jesus. Um, this actually occurs in the midst of uh, several chapters where Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives. Here's what's going to happen. And this is his last teaching in that sequence. Um, this idea of Jesus on the throne separating uh, the sheep and the goats. Um, I know this. We don't know as much as we would like to about the future coming of Jesus, do we? Uh, he actually says in, in the course of Matthew 24, during his earthly ministry, he didn't know as much as he would like to about it either. But what we do know is more than enough uh, for every knee to bow and every tongue confess that he indeed is King of kings and Lord of lords. So let's look at this, um, this scene that Jesus paints for us in Matthew 25 uh, and see what's happening here. Jesus, again, he's actually kind of landing the plane on uh, this long series of teachings and parables and he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's interesting, the Son of Man. I don't know what you think of when you hear that phrase, uh, that title. It's like Jesus comes in and there's name tags and he writes Son of Man and sticks it on himself. Um, and we wonder, is that a big deal? Well, it, it's a big deal in the scriptures. <laughs> It's a huge deal in the scriptures that he would call himself uh, the son of man. You see, if you trace that phrase, it goes all the way back to Daniel chapter 7. And in that Old Testament book, Daniel chapter 7, um, you see this scene and it's, it's the throne room of God. And you have one, he's known as the ancient of days, uh, God the father, and he speaks to one who he calls the son of man. 
and he commissions the Son of Man to go and to reign over all of the nations. All the way back in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is this divine figure. And if you are claiming to be the Son of Man, you're actually claiming to be more than a man. It's actually a claim of divinity. And so if you look over and over in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes. And just a little bit later in Matthew 26, Jesus is arrested and he's brought before the religious leaders. They say, hey, tell us the truth. Are you the son of God? And he goes, from now on, you will only see the son of man coming on the clouds. And says they tore their robes at his blasphemy because he was claiming to be more than merely human. Um, this is not a claim of his humanity. It's one of his divinity. This regal kingly title uh, from Daniel chapter 7 and what you get the sense of here is that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, people have misunderstood Jesus. They haven't understood his teachings. They've not understood his miracles. They've not understood who he is or why he came. And he's letting them know that eventually, one day, all will be evident. The Son of Man will come in all of his glory, with his attendants, with his angels, and he'll be seen for who he truly is. His glory and majesty will be unmistakable. This reigning king promised of old. And the idea is that we will almost instinctively drop to our knees in worship. And that when we see him for who he truly is, the only proper response is adoration. And we'll know the truth of something we pray each week in our liturgy. It is right to give him thanks and praise. What else would you do? in the face of this beauty, in the face of this authority, in the face of this glory, the reign of King Jesus. Uh, you might have noticed some of the songs that we sing today, um, they focus on, on Jesus as king. And that might feel normal. I mean, I mean, in some sense, every Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. We're always proclaiming the kingship of Jesus. In some ways, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. We're always proclaiming uh, that he has died and he has now risen. But what's unique is you'll actually pick up some undertones of the ascension of Jesus on the, in these readings and these songs, Christ the King. Because when Jesus ascended, the risen Lord Jesus ascended, we're told that he was set at the throne uh, right beside the Father. He was able to rest he had completed all of the work he was supposed to do, and now he sits and intercedes uh, for you and for me on that throne. And we're almost waiting in between uh, the ascension where Jesus sat on the throne and this coming day when his throne will be fully revealed for everyone to see. As it's put in Hebrews, once all of his enemies are put under his feet, and we're waiting and longing uh, for that day. Because he is king and he will be king. He reigns and his kingdom will have no end. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That's who we're waiting on. Christ our king uh, to come again. That's who is coming. Uh, but why is he coming? We say in the creed that we believe that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus paints this picture here uh, the heading of my Bible says the final judgment. Uh, 
the throne, the sheep, the goats. For many of us, we're automatically going, hey, it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. <laughs> Can we just chill out a little bit? Matt, when you think about judgment, do you get nervous? Does just that phrase send a red flag up for you? I would say that on the one hand, that's understandable. We should have a proper awe and reverence and fear of the Lord. But on the other hand, this is actually good news. You see, for those who place their faith in Christ, the sheep belonging to the flock of the good shepherd, this is extraordinarily good news. That one day he will come again and he will judge the living and the dead. He will make sure that justice is finally done. Let, let, me, let me consider this another way. Um, how many times have you wondered, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering? Like, why is there pain? The idea that when Jesus comes again, he will judge the living and the dead shows and teaches that when Jesus comes, he will fix everything that has been broken, everything that has been painful and harmful. Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. All things are being renewed and restored in and through and by King Jesus, starting with you and me. The idea that he will come to judge the living and the dead, that he will bring justice. Well, Bishop N.T. Wright uh, says that justice doesn't simply mean punishing wickedness. That's a flat definition of it. It means bringing the world back into balance, making all things new, restoring all things, reconciling all things in himself. So that's what we're waiting on. That's the good news of this last judgment, is that the one who comes uh, to be our judge will come to make all things new, starting with you and me. And so here we have this scene uh, of, of kingship and of judgment. Where, where this one on the throne calls all the nations to himself and says he separates them like sheep and goats. Um, and one just quick thing here, I, I don't know, do we have any shepherds among us this morning? Okay, uh, anyone familiar, have sheep and goats at the house? Okay, we got one here, one or two, okay, two or three, good, good. Um, if you, I, don't, I think a lot of us, Jesus is so adept at using these scenes from everyday life, but they're not scenes from all of our everyday lives. Uh, some of us, it's great. We can actually lean and say, hey, tell me what this is like to care for sheep or to care for goats. Um, what's interesting, if you, if you kind of go even today into the Middle East, you'll notice uh, the sheep and goats will go out and graze together. Um, so if you've got sheep and you've got goats, and a lot of times you had both, um, you would take them out and you would send them up onto the hill or the area and they would all go and graze. Um, they would eat and if they were kind of out on a distance, um, they look kind of the same, right? I mean, they're just like furry and little. <laughs> um, and they're all way out there. The sheep and the goats, they're just doing their thing, milling around. Um, and then when you would come in for the night, that's when the shepherd's task uh, was really important. 
Because you couldn't have the sheep and the goats stay the night together. You had to move the sheep into the sheepfold, and you had to have the goats go into their area. You had to keep them uh, separate. And I've been told, I don't know if this is right, but that essentially they were separated uh, so that the goats would be able to kind of huddle up and keep warm. They have different needs at night. So they have to be separated, the sheep and the goats. Uh, but the point is that at first they're indistinguishable um, until night comes. And here, Jesus is saying that the peoples, these nations, well, they're in, indistinguishable in some ways until uh, the judgment comes. Uh, for all intents and purposes, I, you can't tell the difference in the sheep and the goats, but Jesus can. Jesus, the good shepherd, the shepherd king, can tell the difference and separates uh, these flocks. And so how does Jesus tell them apart? How does he figure out that the faithful sheep I should go on the right and the faithless goats on the left. Well, one is Jesus is a good shepherd. Um, he knows his sheep, and so he, he draws this line in the sand, sheep on the right, goats on the left. The first thing I notice there is there's no in-between. No one's straddling the line. No one's tiptoeing on the line. You're a sheep or you're a goat. Jesus makes that pretty clear here. Uh, you're one or the other. And he kind of shows us which one we should want to be, doesn't he? Uh, the sheep here, well, they're heirs of an unimaginable future. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has been waiting and longing to give this inheritance uh, to his people, to his flock, the sheep. And, and here, the last great day finally has come, and they have eternity to enjoy uh, with the good shepherd, their king. The fate of the goats, opposite, not good. Um, and I just, when I read through this, I go, man, Jesus is really clear. Again, this is a series of parables and teachings. If you read through this, what should be clear is that when Jesus comes, you want him to recognize you as a sheep, not expose you as a goat. The other thing that's pretty clear is that there's going to be surprises. There's some surprise here. People don't know. There's, wait, I go where? But I thought they're surprised at how things uh, play out. And I thought, man, it's, uh, one of the takeaways here is that don't assume you know if someone is a sheep or a goat. Um, I think sometimes people read this and they go, well, cool, let's speculate on somebody else. Are they a sheep? Are they a goat? How have I seen them live out uh, their faith? I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. He's actually wanting us to do an internal analysis. Are we part of his flock? Do we know the good shepherd? Have we heard his voice and do we follow him? Do we trust him for our provision and care? And the way Jesus recognized them is pretty interesting. Here we hear in verses 40 and verse 45 that there's this distinction between how those who are called sheep and those who are called goats have interacted with the least of these. He says, my, my brothers, my brethren. The sheep cared for that group in a sacrificial, practical ways. And the goats didn't. And what I notice is that both are pretty confused, the sheep and the goats, because they didn't know 
uh, that when the, they didn't know they were making a choice at all. They didn't know when they were interacting with others that they were actually interacting with Jesus in some sense. They didn't get the connection there. And by the way, they're not sheep or goats because of how they've interacted with these others. Rather, how they've interacted with the least of these reveals their true identity. And again, it's a little tricky. Um, I feel like Jesus is just stacking images here. Because when most of us hear the phrase, the least of these, you might think Jesus is talking about how we care for the poor. Uh, The least of these, the very least. Um, And that would mean like the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're called to see and to serve everyone as our neighbor. And that is right and true and good and biblical. And I don't think that's quite the edge Jesus has here. Um, That's a true teaching, but the... Really, the consensus view here through church history, uh, modern scholarship, is that when Jesus talks about the least of these, my brothers, um, he's actually talking about those who are part of the Christian community, part of the spiritual uh, family of God. Let me just show you how this works a little bit. Um, Earlier in Matthew chapter 12, that's earlier in this very same gospel, Uh, Jesus' mother and his family come and they want to talk to him. And Jesus says, who is my mother? And they're like, "Uh, she's right there, man. Like, she can hear you. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, these are my mother and these are my brothers. Jesus actually will redefine a family within the church. He'll redefine these connections. A little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 10, he's sending out his followers to do ministry. And listen to what he says. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. There's this connection between Jesus and his followers. Jesus says the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, the least of these, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It's fascinating. When Jesus is talking about his family, and those who are the least of these in his family, he's actually talking about the church. He's talking about this community that he has gathered um, around himself. Um, And I actually find that a little more challenging. Like the Good Samaritan is hard. Like here's this nameless person. I don't know them. I'm called to, to have an act of charity and kindness and then move on with my life. I can do that sometimes. But the least of these in the church, the person who is in need and irritating in the church, well, I'm with them all the time. I don't just pass by them and get to keep going. We're put in the same family day after day, week after week, year after year after year with one another to care for and to love and to serve one another. And Jesus says, if you are meeting one another's needs in practical, 
sacrificial ways, you were part of the sheep. And you were doing it as if you were doing it unto me. And if you're not, then you might be a goat, which is bad. Uh, the most appropriate response, just as we think about the coming of Jesus, is to prepare, to get ready. There's some sobering reality to this. That's why it comes to the end of the liturgical year, um, that there will come a day uh, when our deeds are exposed and weighed and balanced. The Anglican funeral service uh, actually quotes from the book of Job, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. After my awaking, he will raise me up, and in my body I shall see God. I myself shall see, and my eyes behold him who is my friend and not a stranger. Um, it's, a, it's a sober warning, but also a beautiful hope that we will see him who is a friend and not a stranger. Um, the simple instruction will be, don't, don't meet him for the first time then. You have the opportunity to know him now, to experience uh, him now. And the first step to that is just a surrender. I think that's why the idea of Christ as king is so powerful, because Christ as king, that's a statement that we respond to. And we respond with, uh, with, with bent knee. C.S. Lewis once said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. We lay down our arms before the King of kings and Lord of lords. We lay down our arms before uh, Jesus. The last thing, that's, that's, a, I mean, that's where we start with responding to this uh, individually. But what about as a church, as a community? Uh, what does that look like? Well, I came across um, a passage, a study by Tim Keller, uh, looking at this chapter and he applies it to what it would look like in the church. He says, if Jesus is using this term, my brothers, in his usual way to refer to believers, then he's teaching that genuine disciples of Christ will create a new community that doesn't exclude the poor, the members of other races, the powerless. It deals with their needs sacrificially and practically. That those folks in need, like the one the Good Samaritan met, they're not on the side of the road. They're in the midst of the family. They've been brought in. A new kind of community uh, has been formed. And so it's a the, it's the call to create a believing community in which um, the well-off, the middle class, are sacrificially giving their resources away. We're deeply, personally involved in the lives of the many weak and vulnerable in our midst. That's actually presupposed by this teaching. The presumption of Jesus is that we will have the kind of church and community where we have people to care for in our midst. Not out there, and we need to go out there, of course, but also in our midst. And we care for and love and serve uh, one another. And we think about how we are formed into that kind of community as a church. Come, Lord Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.